40th chapter of Isaiah, and uh, I think this scripture passage may have 1 through 31. In a few moments, we're going to start reading with verse 12. I'll be speaking as we begin the chapter about some of those opening verses, but you go ahead and turn and have that ready. Isaiah chapter 40. Newspaper headlines, when we used to have such thing, uh, and we still do, they're just not on hard copy. We st- in whatever way you get your news, sometimes headlines can be a little bit misleading. I have some examples for you this morning. One time a newspaper headline came out that said this, two sisters reunited after 18 years at the checkout counter. <laughs> Think about it, they'll get there. What about this one? Thief gets six months in violin case. Talk about solitary, right? I love this one. High school dropouts cut in half. And then there's this one. Red tape holds up new bridges. And I don't know about you, but I just thought this last one was funny. Typhoon rips through cemetery. Hundreds dead. These might be humorous, but you know what? However you get your news, sometimes when we see the headlines today, it gives us a rather frightening picture of our world, doesn't it? We constantly hear of wars, of bombings, of kidnappings, of drug-related incidences, of, of inhumanities committed by seemingly ordinary good people. How many of us have either heard someone say or have said ourselves, I'm just not surprised anymore. What is this world coming to? Well, back in 539 BC, King Cyrus of Persia defeated Babylonia. And this world event had significance not only on Babylonia, but it had significance on Israel as well. Because you see, Israel had just been defeated by Babylonia. And then along comes Persia, and they defeated Babylonia. So when the people got up that morning, and they saw their news headlines, however they received them, and they saw that the country that had defeated them had just been defeated by another country, they had to have been asking, can it get any worse than this? The prophet Isaiah was then called and commissioned to present a new message of hope and encouragement for the Jewish nation. And his message is one of hope and encouragement for us today as well. We may not have been held captive in a political sense, but in a very real way, many people today are still being held captive just as strongly by fear, by doubts, by estrangements, by hopelessness, by despair. And so we need to see what Isaiah's message can mean for us today. Stand, if you will. You listen as I read Isaiah chapter 40, starting with verse 12. Who has measured the waters of the hollow in his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains? on the scales and heels in a balance. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? 
Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt sacrifices. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot, and they look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes. Look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Father, we come to you today to praise you, to praise you in your power and might and majesty. And Father, we recognize also that you are just as great in your love and your understanding and your compassion for us. And so, Father, help us to find in these words from the ancient prophet today, words of hope, words of encouragement, words to see us through on days that it seems as if we cannot even put one foot in front of the other. Guide our thoughts to your holy presence now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and be seated. Number one in your outlines today, the strength and the greatness of God. In these first nine verses, we're reminded not to place our hope and our trust 
in the strength or in the mind of man or in political force or in anything human. Why? Because they are frail. They're frail as grass or flowers that wither and die. Allow me to give you just before we go any further a very brief explanation of a couple of verses in this 40th chapter of Isaiah that represent really the message for the entire chapter. Verse 7. We didn't read it, but verse 7 describes the images of, of people being blown away like grass or flowers that wither. And then in verses 23 and 24, we read of rulers of nations being brought to nothing and being blown away. We need to understand this is not to be understood as something harsh or something negative. This is not describing God's wrath. The overall message of Isaiah 40 is not one of judgment. Very similar to Psalm 8, it is contrasting the greatness of God with the smallness of man. In fact, there are a lot of very, very good similarities between Isaiah chapter 40 and Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, David looks up to a night sky and with the thousands of stars that he would have been able to see naturally, he then asks the question, what is man that you care and so in the very same way, Isaiah chapter 40 contrasts the greatness and the power and the might and the majesty of God with the human frailty of man. In verses 10 and 11, God is then described as both a warrior king and at the same time a gentle shepherd. And these images are not opposing each other. They're not conflicting descriptions. They are meant to complement each other. It's because he is our great and mighty and powerful king that he then has the ability to be as gentle as a shepherd carrying a young lamb in his arms. And we need that reminder today. God is both strong and gentle. He is strong enough to handle anything and everything that comes up but even in his strength and power and might, he's not removed from us in any way. He shows his kindness to us. He comes to us with love and compassion. He comes to us with understanding of exactly who we are and where we are. He comes to lift us up and to encourage us. Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song that expresses it this way. We can only know the power that he holds when we truly see how deep our weakness goes. His strength in us begins when ours comes to an end. His strength is perfect. When our strength is gone, he'll carry us when we can't carry on. Raised in his power, the weak become strong. His strength is perfect. Here's my sermon today for you in two sentences. There is nothing that we can face that is too much for God to handle. And there is nothing that we can do that is too much for him to forgive. The rest of this 40th chapter of Isaiah brings reminders and visual examples of these true truths. We need to behold our God.
Number two, we look at our incomparable God. The first thing Isaiah needed to do was to give the Israelites a clearer picture of who God was. They needed to be reminded of some things, and so do we. I've shared with you before that in ancient times, war was perceived as more than just an opposition between kings or nations or cultures. Among pagan societies, war was seen just as realistically as conflicts between their gods, little g. When a nation was defeated, it was just assumed that their god had been unable to win the victory for them. In their minds, that victorious nation obviously was blessed by a more powerful god. And so the problem was that during their captivity in Babylonia, Israel had come to embrace this very same thought. In their minds, Jehovah God had been defeated by those pagan gods of Bel and Nebo. And now these gods had just been defeated by the gods of Persia. And so Isaiah dealt with it in two ways. First of all, he presents that incomparable greatness of God. And then he contrasts it with the weakness of those pagan deities. So next in your outline, he begins to ask some rhetorical questions. Isaiah chapter 40 is filled with questions that Isaiah raises in order to get people to think. Verses 12 through 21. Verse 12, first it says, Who can hold the oceans of the world in his hands? If we're very, very careful, the most we can do when we try to hold some water in the cups of our hands might be just a few ounces, and that for not very long, because it's going to leak out, right? Isaiah is saying that God measures the oceans in the cups of his hands. Those who study those kinds of things tell us that the oceans of the world contain more than 352 quintillion gallons. That's a 352 with 18 zeros behind it. And Isaiah says God holds it just like this. Verse 12, he goes on, he says, Who measures the heaven with the breadth of his hand? Some of your translations will say with the span of his hand. A span is the distance from the tip of the little finger to the thumb. That's the span of the hand. And so Isaiah is saying that's how God measures the galaxies. We know that light travels at 186,000 miles per second. And so the distance of a light year is thought to be 6 trillion miles. And just from what we know from observing our universe, you multiply that 6 trillion miles by another 93 billion. And that's the vastness of the universe. And Isaiah says, God, God looks at it just like this. We think of the mass of the earth as being so great that Isaiah says, it is nothing more than a tiniest piece of dust in a basket that God carries. We think of the mountains being huge. When we go up to North Carolina, I love as we're going up Interstate 26 from South Carolina into North Carolina, and you get that first view of the mountains in the distance. Mount Mitchell, the highest point east of the Mississippi, we think it's pretty big. 
Rocky Mountains out west. Mount Everest. Isaiah says it is as if God picks it up and he puts it on a tiny little balancing scale. And after his making his point in these physical terms, Isaiah then throws out more questions. Who dares to think that they can understand the creative force behind this? Who dares to think that God would call on them for help or for guidance or for advice? And then Isaiah even increases his boldness even more. Remember they were in Babylonia who had conquered them and now Persia had come along and had conquered per, uh, Babylonia. And so Isaiah deals with all of it. Verse 15, he says, all nations, even the greatest nations are just like a drop of water compared to a bucket full. He says they are like the tiniest speck of dust on the smallest, most precise set of balancing scales that we can imagine. Verse 16, he goes on to say that if all the trees in Lebanon were used to build a fire, and if all the animals in the forest were used as a sacrifice, it would not be fitting enough for our great and mighty God. Verse 18, he asked then, how dare we compare this to the idol worship that they not only have seen, but now that some of them are beginning to embrace themselves in Babylonia. He says all they can do, verse 19, is just take some little image and cover it with gold and then use some type of little silver chains or joints or sockets to hold it together so it won't fall apart. Are they comparing this to God? He goes on, verse 20. He says, people who can't afford gold and silver then go out and find someone to carve something out of wood for them and they put it on the shelf hoping it won't fall over. I can hear Isaiah saying, are you kidding me? Is this what you think of our almighty God? Now I want to take just a little aside here. We need to chase a rabbit for just a minute. Isaiah chapter 46 gives us another picture of this very same thing where he's contrasting the absurdity of worshiping these idols with worshiping the one true living God. The original statues of Bel and supposedly Bel's son Nebo, their greatest gods, were huge. They were immense statues. And they were brought out on wagons or carts uh, on the Babylonian New Year's Day and on other uh, religious occasions. And in chapter 46, Isaiah is recalling what it was like when Babylon was about to fall. Persia was approaching, the fall was imminent. And so in order to save them, <laughs> the people were loading these giant statues up on carts and trying to take them away to safety in order to save them from the opposing army. army. And as these carts are being pulled through the streets in Babylon, they're so heavy and so tall and so large that they dip and sway and they tip and they are about to fall over. And so the people have to use ropes and poles and everything they can to try to keep them from falling over. Now you tell me what's wrong with this picture. The people and the cattle pulling these guards precariously through the streets of Babylon and the gods themselves that the people are trying to save were going to end up in captivity. 
And the ultimate joke is that the people were not able to save their gods. And so the whole point of Isaiah 46 and, and our chapter today, 40, Isaiah is saying, is this who you want to put your faith and your trust in? The intensity builds. Back in chapter 40, Isaiah continues with questions to attempt to jar them out of their complacency. All he wants to do is to just stir them up, to arouse them, to get them to wake up and sit up and listen. What does he say? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Have you not been told from the beginning? Has this not been ingrained in you since the beginning of time? Do you sense what Isaiah is doing? Do you sense what I'm trying to do this morning? I know we know the answers. But I also know that sometimes life just gets in the way. I know what it's like for pressures and fatigue to build up. I know what it's like to have doubts and despairs to overcome us and blind us and deafen us to what God has for us. Isaiah could use some blunt language at times, but he also could use some very expressive language to encourage them. And that is my heart today. I want to encourage you from these words in Isaiah. Verse 22, next we see some more of the imagery that Isaiah presents. He uses several images in verses 22 through 26. God sits on a throne high above the earth. And Isaiah says that God controls the stars just like we would throw back a curtain. Also, in verse 22, he uses the terminology of a tent or a canopy. Let me explain to you why he chose those words. Today, we think in terms of looking up to see the stars, right? Well, in the Middle East, as well as in other places on our earth, when you're out in the middle of the ocean, or if you're out in the desert and you don't have trees and lights and buildings and everything, you don't just look up to see the stars, you look around you. And at night, it's as if the stars are down touching the surface of the earth. And it is a literal 180 degree view. And so that's why. Isaiah uses those words of a tent and a canopy. Some astronomers tell us that there are three trillion stars in our universe. They're being very conservative. Others tell us that the number is more like 700 billion trillion. <laughs> 700 with 21 zeros behind it. Now this was especially bold of Isaiah because of the Babylonian interest in star worship. Now their means of astronomy and study may be primitive by what we know today, but those Babylonians knew something about stars and astronomy. And you know what, when they looked out and, and, and even just the thousands of stars that they would have literally been able to see in that canopy surrounding them all around them, they thought of those stars as gods who controlled them. And so Isaiah had to deal with that as well. And in verse 26, he says that even the stars 
answer to Almighty God. I, had not, I did not serve in the military. But one thing I am told is that when you were in the military, the one thing you did not do was miss roll call. And Isaiah is saying that God looks out and he calls those 700 million billion stars by name and they do not dare miss lining up. Then we come to the heart of the matter. Verse 27. How can you say? Isaiah says, how can you say your way is hidden? Some of your translations say that your way is unseen by our God. I like the way the NIV says, how can you say my cause is disregarded by my God? Let me give you the Phillips translation. How dare you say God doesn't care about you? Verse 28 is just a repeat of verse 21. It's for emphasis. Do you not know? Have you not heard? And the answer then comes verses 28, 29. Number three in your outline, our compassionate God. Look at that last verse of 28. His understanding no one can fathom. You need to realize that the word for understanding there, his understanding, God's understanding, no one can fathom. The word for understanding there has nothing to do with God's mind or his ability to understand something or to store knowledge. It has nothing to do with knowledge or intellect. The word there is a direct reference to God's compassion. Isaiah is saying, we cannot even begin to understand God's compassion for us. Yes, God is great in power and might and majesty, and he is just as great in his compassion and his love. It wasn't enough for Israel to just be reminded one more time of God's power and might. They already knew that. Have you not heard? Do you not know? Isaiah spent all of these verses and all of these times and all of these questions for these 28 verses in order to let them know one thing. Look at verse 29. He gives strength to the weary. I believe that the verb there, he gives, is just as important, if not more so, than the noun, he gives strength. Because you see, God not only, not only has the power, but he gives his power to us. Several years ago when I was serving another church, I did a devotional booklet that I called Scripture Gems. And GEM, G-E-M, was an acronym for God Empowering Me. And I came up with about a dozen verses and wrote some devotions for them. Uh, and presented them to this church. A little bit later, I took those dozen and I added some more to it and I came up with 31, so it was going to be a monthly, uh, a devotion for a month. And I put it on the back burner and then sometime later brought it out again and uh, increased it to 40. I thought that sounded like a good, good scriptural number, 40 scripture gems, God empowering me. Well, now I have those 40 original primary 
verses of scripture about how God gives his strength to us. And then I have 35 more secondary ones. Do you think it might be important? Finally, we come to number four, our strength giving God. Verse 31, a better understanding of that word renew in verse 31 is better understood as exchange. We exchange our limited strength with God's limitless strength. How many of you remember that old children's chorus, the children's song we used to sing, our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. We need to see the bookends. Go back to the very first verse. We didn't read it this morning, but look at that very first verse of Isaiah 31. What does God say to Isaiah at the very beginning? Comfort, comfort my people. That's what this entire chapter of Isaiah 40 is all about. It's not about God's wrath. It's about God's comfort. The truths of Isaiah 40 were designed to build confidence in our creator and sustainer God and then for that confidence to give us comfort. And they needed it because you see, they were away from their homeland they were away from the holy temple that they felt was sacred. They were away from all that was dear and meaningful for them. They needed comfort because they were suffering. And they did not see an end to that suffering even coming. And we need it as well. We need God's comfort. And so where do we find it? That first bookend. God said, comfort, comfort my people. Go to verse 31 at the end of the chapter. And that's the other bookend. What does it say? To those who hope in the Lord. God is saying to them, trust me. Place your hope in me. There's a very strong alliance in the scripture between waiting and hoping. Waiting and hoping are not passive. They're not giving in. It's not just a desperate hope. It's not giving up because we realize things aren't going to change anyway. It is an expectant hope. I have several scripture passages in your order of service this morning. We wait in hope for the Lord for he is our help and our shield. Psalm 33 verse 20. Psalm 39, 7. Now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I place my hope. Micah 7, 7. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Romans 8, 25. We Hope for what we do not yet have. We wait for it patiently. And then Titus 2.13. We wait for the blessed hope. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Jesus Christ. We are much like the people of Israel. 
We might not worship idols, but we can become guilty of an idolatry of the mind. We've decided that God can't handle our problems, and so we turn to other directions. Whatever we feel like will give us hope or comfort or escape, and there is our idol. There is our God. Here's your homework today. To make us think, Isaiah raises many, many questions throughout this 40th chapter. I want to encourage you to do some brainstorming this week with two questions. What are some things that other people try to substitute in their lives for God? Physical, tangible things, figurative things. But then ask yourself, what have I been trying to substitute for God's presence in my life? Morality, being a good person, being better than someone else. Financial security or, or some other form of security, is that what we rest on? Spend some prayer time with this and see what God reveals to you. In looking at this last verse, verse 31, there have been a lot of applications to verse 31 to our lives. Some have pointed to those very obvious physical age-related considerations in our youth, in our prime. Sometimes we soar, sometimes we run, sometimes we walk. We're gonna be talking tonight about the fact that some of us don't run as much as we used to anymore. But God picks us up regardless of where we are and he gives us his strength physically. It's there, I get it, yes. There have also been the comparisons of verse 31 to our spiritual walk with God. For many people, it was as if we were soaring the day that we asked Jesus into our hearts. And then... We became engaged in running our race, to use one of those analogies that the Apostle Paul talks about in the New Testament. And now we've come to the point that we're just steadily walking along. And so wherever we are in our faith walk, sometimes we soar, sometimes we run, sometimes we walk. Wherever we are spiritually, God comes to us and renews us. Yes, I get it. That's there. But let me offer another application. For this 31st verse. Sometimes, regardless of age, sometimes we soar like eagles. I've had some of those eagle soaring moments, and so have you. The day I gave my heart to Jesus, the day I got married, the night I witnessed my first daughter being born. An eagle-soaring moment. The evening that our first grandson came to me completely on his own, not prompted by anyone or anything else, and put his arms around me and whispered in my ear, I love you. That was an eagle-soaring moment. On two different occasions, 
back in 07 and 10 years later again in 2017 when I returned from a solo circumnavigation of Eastern North America. I had covered more than 5,000 miles, 18 states and Canada. And I might have been idling into Kennedy Point Marina in Titusville in my little 18 foot boat, but I want you to know I was soaring like an eagle. But you know what, we also have those days that we might not be soaring like eagles, but we feel like we could run a marathon, maybe figuratively. We feel like we could handle whatever comes our way. There's a spring in our step. We're confident, we're healthy, and there are those days that we're ready to meet the world and whatever it wants to throw at us. But then there are also those days that it feels like it is just all we can do to just put one foot in front of the other and just trudge along. Maybe there are stressors, maybe there are pressures, maybe there are health concerns, but sometimes we feel as if just simply making it through the day is all we can do. Sometimes we soar. Sometimes we run. Sometimes we walk. And you know what? Some days, we just can't. We just can't. And it's then that Isaiah comes to us and he says, it's okay. It's okay. God will give you his strength. Scott Wesley Brown said it this way. There is no problem too big, God cannot solve it. There's no mountain too tall, he cannot move it. There's no storm too dark, God cannot calm it. There's no sorrow too deep that he cannot soothe it. If he carried the weight of the world upon his shoulders, I know my brother, I know my sister, that he will carry you. There's no problem too big, no mountain too tall, no storm too dark, no sorrow too deep. If he carried the weight of the world on his shoulders, I know he will carry you. I close this morning with a very brief history lesson. You remember at the very beginning, I told you that Persia had just conquered Babylon, who had just conquered Israel. And so the Israelites were wondering, could it get any worse? The reason that God allowed Persia to conquer Babylonia was to set up the release of Israel and to set them free. They would be going home soon. And that was the way God did it was through Persia. And so I ask you today, what do you need to be released from? Don't try to do it on your own. Don't try to do it from any other source. Let God work in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.
that you've given us these precious, precious words from your word today. And we pray, Father, that as we face those challenges, those very hard, very real challenges in our lives, help us to realize that you are there with us. And just as great as you are in power and might and majesty, just as great you are in your love and in your compassion and your guidance in our lives. Help us to trust you and to rely on you. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. I want you to know today that God is here with us. And he is here with us to help us deal with whatever you may be dealing with in your life. And so as we come to a time of commitment in our service this morning, this is your opportunity to respond, not to me, not necessarily to this church, but to respond to him in any way that he might be speaking to you. Stand as we sing our commitment.